These are the words of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ear hears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. A gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come this morning in the name of your Son to lift up our hearts to worship you, to have our hearts open to see the glory and majesty of our King. Our Lord Jesus, now do so. May he be exalted in our midst. May we see him and glory in him, for he is indeed our King. It's in his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. On September 8th, 2022, King Charles III acceded to the throne and became the King of England. Many of us thought it would never happen. I thought maybe the Queen would outlive him. But the very next day, the BBC ran an article that said, What kind of king will Charles be? Charles is the longest-serving heir to the throne in British history. He had witnessed generations of world leaders come and go, including 15 U.K. prime ministers and 14 U.S. presidents. It's an astounding breadth of history that he's watched unfold. But the article was really concerned with what kind of king he would be? What was his character like? How would his reign be characterized? That's what our text is about today. Last week, we looked at the reign of Christ, how the mountain of the house of God is exalted above all the hills, and the nations will stream to them, and he will teach them out of his law. They will all be enrolled in the school of Christ, right? And they will learn to walk in faithfulness. And this morning, we're going to learn about the nature of Christ, our King, who he is, how he begins his humble beginnings, but also what will be the end of his reign, the goal. Where is it all going to? You see, David is the archetype of a good king. He is the measurement by which all of Israel's kings are measured. He is the ideal Israelite, and all kings should be. 
They should model in their own behavior what it means to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And when they were successful, when they were faithful, they were like David. When they were not, they were not like David. He became the point of comparison. And as I mentioned last week, Isaiah is speaking at a bleak moment in Israel's history. Isaiah 1.1 tells us that he prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, during Jotham's reign, Ahaz, and also Hezekiah. Now, Uzziah and Jotham and Hezekiah were faithful kings. They did their best to return Israel to worship the Lord from the heart. But Ahaz was a skunk. He was a bad dude. He went in league with the king of Assyria, which led to the exile of Israel. And when he did that, he went up into Samaria and he patterned the worship of Israel in Jerusalem off of the worship there in Samaria, introducing idolatrous practices to the people. And Isaiah is speaking in the midst of that. He's speaking into the midst of a context with a Davidic king who is less than stellar, who does not measure up to the ideal of David. But hope still remains. The mighty tree that is the dynasty of David will be felled, and the tree will fall, and there will only be a stump left. But the root remains, and from that will come a branch. And it is that branch that will be the hope, not just for Judah, but for the whole world. And the prophet highlights the nature of this future Davidic king by showing its humble, his humble beginnings, just as a branch. And then tracing that through its, to its conclusion and ending in a worldwide reign of peace. But that end will only come because of the kind of king that Jesus is. So first, we're going to look at his humble beginnings. Notice it says, There shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Why Jesse? Why does he not say a branch shall come from the stump of David, and he shall bear fruit? Well, think with me. Who is the who is the the uh, fruit from Jesse's loins? David, and so the only fruit that could come from the stump of Jesse would be another David, a second David. You see, even in the midst of the bleakness of the Davidic king's failings repeatedly, and if you read through the Kings and Chronicles, which we have done in our Bible reading plan, you'll know that over and over and over again, the people of God are led astray by faulty kings, men who were wicked, and, it, and this includes Judah. Hezekiah's son is Manasseh, one of the worst kings to reign in Judah. And although he has a, a great-grandson, Josiah, who will introduce some reforms and, and try to bring the nation back to faithfulness, even he cannot stem the tide of them slowly sliding down into idolatrous practices to the point that God expels them in the exile. But if you were to read the very end of 2 Kings, you'd get a glimpse of hope. You would would hear that the king 
David's son was being entertained at the table of evil Merodach, the king of Babylon. You get a glimmer of hope that the Davidic king still remains, that although the tree, the, the former glory of the dynasty of David has ended, there's still hope in a branch that will come. Isaiah is saying that even though we're looking out now, and there's not much reason for hope. There is hope. There is hope because out of this root will come someone who will change the world. You see, a branch out of the stump is like a baby in a manger who is, in fact, God incarnate. It looks powerless and weak, but it's God's chosen means of changing the world. This is God's favorite way of operating. He takes the hopeless and desperate situation and he raises up the most unlikely hero and then he works a miracle. And then it's clear to everyone that it did not rest on the strength or might of the person that he raised up, but it is dependent on God alone. He favors the runts, the little guys, the insignificant over the strong, the smart and the firstborn. Just, just recount some of the stories of the patriarchs. Think about Abraham, who was nothing and no one. And God called him out and said, I'm going to make you a nation. And yet he and Sarah were barren. They had no children of their own. That's the people that God likes to use to make a great nation out of. What about Israel? There were nobody in the scope of all of the superpowers around them, absorbed into Egypt as they were. And yet God delivers them by a mighty hand, not because of anything Israel did or could do. And I could go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament to recount for you story after story where God takes the littlest person and he works a great victory. Because that's what God does. Why is that? Because it's his story. It's his story, and he's the leading actor in it. Everyone else plays secondary roles, supportive roles to the main character, God himself. And he will get the glory for delivering, for bringing salvation. So we, we don't despise the shoots. They become mighty when wielded by God Almighty. I want you to notice something else here. If you skipped all the way down to verse 10, it says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. The root of Jesse. Now he's not talking about a different person. He's talking about the same righteous branch who comes from Jesse is also the very root of Jesse. Jesse has his foundation in this righteous branch. And of course that's true, because the weakness of a baby born in the manger is actually God incarnate, who is at that very moment upholding the universe by the word of his power. A helpless baby. Babies cannot do anything for themselves. They are dependent solely on the mother for everything. Left to their own, they will die. And that's the instrument that God uses to work his salvation. 
power and weakness. Isaiah is saying, don't look for the branch in these Davidic sons. It's going to be it's going to be a son unlike any other. It's going to be a son like we read about in Psalm 72, whose reign will have no end, who the nations will draw, be drawn in to worship him. It's a king who will live forever. But now he is referring to the root of Jesse, highlighting the uniqueness of this son of David, that David also himself calls him Lord. You'll remember that Jesus asked the Pharisees this. Why is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? How is it that he does this? And they were not able to answer. Well, the answer is he's the branch that comes from Jesse, who is also the root. He's the source of Jesse and also the branch that comes from him. He is God incarnate in the flesh, the son of David and the son of God. Two persons. One, two natures, one person, Jesus Christ, God, man. And he upholds the world by the power of his word. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But the meekness of the shoot does not mean weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. The picture that emerges of great David's greater son is that of a spirit-empowered Savior. No doubt we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. And no doubt John had this text in mind when he comments in John 1.32 that he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding Spirit of counsel and might. Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You remember that the Old Testament saints were filled with the Spirit for a specific task. God came upon them and empowered them by His Spirit to rule well. To deliver God's people. To speak His words. They, did, they were not filled with the Spirit in the same measure or way that we are new covenant people. Because of the coming of Christ and His ascension into heaven. But Jesus is filled with the Spirit, with the sevenfold Spirit. You'll notice there's seven descriptions of the Spirit the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that sevenfold Spirit is the number of perfection, of completion. Jesus is completely filled with the Spirit, unlike anyone else. What the Spirit empowers is also matched by his own response in verse 3 through 5. Inwardly, he delights, and outwardly, he commits himself to righteousness. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's his inner motivation. That's what drives him. That's what moves him to judgment is his delight in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is one of those pregnant terms in the Old Testament to, to signify our, our reverence and respect and awe and obedience of a holy and righteous and just God. You see, this righteous branch shows us the proper order. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 
And if that's not your inward delight, then of course all of your actions will be marred by sin. Then your judgments will be skewed. You will not be judging by, by what you will be judging by what you see and by what you hear. But Jesus judges justly because he, he judges from the heart. And he sees through to the heart. The religious leaders of Jesus' day have become very good at making their own standards. Of course, standards that they could keep, but others couldn't. And that their judgments also uh, tended to oppress the poor and deride the meek. In our current cultural moment, the, the awokened have framed justice in terms of the oppressed and the oppressor. With the oppressed being anyone who occupies any kind of minority status. And the oppressor class is almost always uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. But the problem with the whole woke dilemma is their notion of justice. Whose justice? And by what standard? Justice is certainly not flipping the table so that now, finally, those who have been oppressed can oppress their oppressors. That's not justice. That's not even biblical categories of justice. Those are derived from Marxism. Justice comes down to the word of God. Jesus judges not by sight, but with righteousness and with equity, because he is the word of God. He is the very embodiment of the law, and he keeps it perfectly. But if he saves the poor and the meek of the earth, he does so by punishing the wicked. In the incarnation, Jesus came to save, which turned out to be a two-part deliverance. First, he made salvation possible through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Then, having secured salvation, he promised that he would come again in judgment to wake war on all those who had as we read last week in Psalm 2, set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. You'll notice the language in verse 5 of the belt. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Those are set parallel to each other. And it's symbolic of someone who is about to face a foe and to engage in a struggle. And that he is fully equipped to engage in that struggle that wrestling it's a it's a wrestling term they would gird up their loins for battle to go to war jesus engages in a great struggle against sin and death girded about with righteousness and faithfulness he doesn't come to judge uh, unjustly like we do right we get offended by something and we want vengeance whether or not it's right or wrong We want it because we have been personally slighted. Some wrong has been done to us and we want want justice. And that, that very notion, that very notion of wanting justice is good. It's hardwired into us because we are made in the image of God and we know that sin has disrupted God's created order so that the way the world works is not right. There actually is injustice in the world. But the way to put it right is not by just turning the tables so that we we get to finally oppress somebody who's done wrong to us. But Jesus judges justly. Listen to this image of him in Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. 
And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is coming. You see, the Advent is not just a remembering of his first coming, but it's also an anticipation of his second coming. And he will come again. And as Bill said earlier, he will come as king. He will come as a conquering king to to make war on those who have oppressed the poor, who have been wicked. But, But in the meantime, he's patient. He lets tares grow alongside wheats. He allows the wicked men to continue to be wicked. And he did this because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That he wishes no man to perish. And so he is patient so that the gospel can go forth. So that men can repent and turn from their wickedness. And so that when he comes, he will find them much different than when he began. I believe that Jesus draws this out when he he stands up in, in Luke He stands up in the synagogue and he reads a a parallel passage from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But he does something very interesting. He leaves out half of verse 2. He says, uh, the Spirit has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and captives, to restore sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. And then he ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes and he sits down. He folds up the scroll and he sits down and he said, Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. But what he didn't read, what he didn't read from Isaiah is the rest of verse 2. And it says, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. Jesus left that off because the time to judge the wicked had not yet come. It had come for him to preach peace to those who are here. To come with the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. But he did not come with the sword. He did not come to judge the nations. That would wait. Now this this doesn't mean that Jesus is not now judging wickedness and restraining evil. He surely is. All of it, all of the wickedness and evil that we find in the world is somehow in the providence of God working all things together for our good. And his ways are inscrutable. They're past finding out. So we don't understand why he is slow to judge the wicked. But let's be honest. A lot of what frustrates us in life is that wicked men seem to get away with it. It seems like, well, I mean, why should I carry on being righteous when, when I'm suffering and they're doing wickedness and they're getting away with it? We have psalms like Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 to remind us that although it seems like the wicked are getting away with it, they're not ultimately getting away with it. Their judgment will come. Like those psalms, this description of the nature of Christ's reign encourage us to patiently endure the suffering that we experience for our faith. This is what Jesus taught his disciples in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, I've told you this over and over again. The gospel paradox is that up is down and down is up. And the weakest is the strongest. And the first will be last. And the last will be first. And if you want life, you have to let go of yours. You have to be willing to die. And if you're not willing to die, then you will never find life. We may not see it now, but justice, ultimate justice, is coming when Jesus comes again. Advent is that time when we remind ourselves that just as he ascended up into the heavens on Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago, so he will come again in great glory. And with him will be that judgment. How are we to be found in that day? What kind of people ought we to be right now as we await his coming? It would seem that the result of this judgment is shalom. In many ways, the Hebrew word shalom has a much broader meaning of our English word peace. It it connotates a wholeness, a a well-being. At root, it's a fulfillment or a completion of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. And that's the picture that verses 6 through 9 paints for us. Notice first that he he shows harmony among the creation before coming in verse 9 to show that it extends to our human relations. Why? Why does he start with animals? The redemption that Christ has accomplished is a restoration of the created order. Grace restores nature. It doesn't obliterate it. Remember that the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of sin. Romans chapter 8. All of the creation was affected by the curse, by sin, so that nothing operates the way that it's supposed to. But the work of Christ restores and elevates nature to its intended goal. Shalom. This, reading this text reminds me of that, the story in, in uh, Prince Caspian, in the Chronicles of Narnia, towards the end uh, of Prince Caspian and Susan and Lucy and Peter and Trumpkin are running away and they, they, they get uh, the idea that they're being chased by something. And then all of a sudden it comes out of the woods and it's a bear, a big brown bear. And Susan has her arrow and she hesitates. She doesn't shoot him and Trumpkin shoots and kills him. She hesitates because she was so used to talking bears in Narnia. Civilized bears, bears that didn't eat you. Not in the book, but in the movie, Trumpkin says, if you get treated like a dumb brute long enough, that's what you become. You see, creation under the curse of sin is bestial. But it's not supposed to be that way. Wolf, leopard, bear, lion, these are all apex predators. They don't have somebody except for man who hunts them. They're the top of their food chain. And they would love nothing more than to make a meal of lamb, goat, cow, or ox. But they are once again in harmony. Once 
even more astonishing is that the little child leads them. A little child leading a lion. Can you conjure up that picture? And that's the design of the original creation. Man was made. No one expected that. No one expected the branch to die the way he did to bring the kind of triumph that his death brought. So first we notice God is trustworthy. The rest of these promises, if the first promise is true and has already been accomplished, then we can expect that he will come again in judgment and that that judgment will bring us peace. Because he began that process on the cross. Where is the greatest point of justice and mercy to meet but in the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross? There, God's justice is met against a sinless Savior. And there, the mercy of God flows to all of His children. There, we see righteousness and peace kiss. There is the greatest point of justice. And that was only beginning. That only began the work that Jesus is doing as King. As he draws more and more people to come and submit to his rule in their hearts, that judgment becomes theirs. They have the justice of God satisfied for them. And what comes from that? What comes from having the not guilty verdict read over your head? Peace and shalom. Maybe not in full, but in part. And as we rejoice in having our sins forgiven as we are at peace with God the enmity that we all were under for so long now we're free and we're at peace we have shalom and that's because Jesus began this promised work that the branch would accomplish when his death on the cross and he continues and will come again but it also gives us a concrete picture of the world that is to come. It's, it has a lot of continuity between this world and the world that will be. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging. My kids came home from school a few weeks ago, and they were having a fierce theological argument about whether all dogs go to heaven. Right? And we've all wondered that, right? Of course they do. <laughs> And so uh, I, I don't personally believe in the resurrection of dogs, but I do believe that there will be dogs in heaven. Of course there will. And, and we can rejoice that although there will be changes, right? When the wolf is with a lamb, something has got to be different, right? If they're hanging out and they're friends, something has changed. When the lion is eating straw, something has really changed, right? And so there's continuity, but there's also discontinuity there'll be some differences as well. And that's hopeful. No eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared. The restoration of all things, that in making all things new, will be a staggering in its effect. Because how far did sin affect? Also, it teaches us that there is, a, there is that hope to be expected in the new heavens and the new earth. If you, if you don't have any hope, if you, if you are living with a worldview that 
that is all competition. It's all food chains and predators, and it's all the nature, red and tooth and claw, and it's all get yours before your neighbor does, then it would seem that survival of the fittest is the name of the game. Why worry about justice in that kind of situation? If you're stronger, then take it from the weak. You don't want those kinds of weak people perpetuating weakness in our species. Kill them. Get rid of it. Be consistent. If that's your worldview, be consistent. But if it's not, and of course that has been at the head of much evil that we've seen in the 20th century, racism and eugenics, genocide, the world wars, all those were driven by this materialistic Darwinian worldview. What what kind of king is Jesus? He's not like any this world has ever produced. He's humble and just. He's righteous and merciful. He's garbed in righteousness. He judges the wicked and gives grace to the poor and meek. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. For he came to make all things new and he is doing it. He will accomplish that work. And he only asks you to believe, to have hope and faith that he will come again. So that when injustice rages around you and when every day you experience the effects of sin through a lack of shalom, that you can remind yourself that Christ will come again. He will come again to finish what 2,000 years ago he began. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we give you thanks for your Son, for his humble beginnings, for his just judgments, and for the peace that he brings. Father, may we be loyal subjects, trusting and hoping and expecting his return. May we be found faithful in that great day. For we pray this in his strong name. And amen.